0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Medical Association of Georgia's Top Docs radio show. Uh, My name is Donald Palmisano, and I'm the executive director and CEO for the Medical Association of Georgia. Uh, Today's show is going to address healthcare issues that are related to patients who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or questioning. With more than 8,000 members, MAG is the leading voice for physicians in Georgia. MAG represents physicians in every specialty as well as every practice setting. For more information about MAG, please go to www.mag.org. MAG's top doc show has now reached over 400,000 listeners in over 80 countries and in every state. I would like to express our sincere thanks to Alliant Health Solutions for its work and support of of MAG as a sponsor. Today, our first guest is Dr. Shilpan Patel, who is a radiation oncologist with GRAIL, whose mission is to develop a screening test to detect cancer early. Dr. Patel has an adjunct appointment as an associate professor in the University of Washington's Department of Global Health, as well as an affiliate appointment in the Division of Public Health at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He has served as a board member and in other leadership roles with Equal Rights Washington, the National LGBTQ Task Force, Phi Chi Medical Foundation, and Generations Aging with Pride. Also note that Dr. Patel chairs AMA's advisory committee on LGBTQ issues. Our second guest is Dr. Scott Chayat, who is double board certified by the American board of otolaryngology and the American board of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Chayat's areas of expertise include rhinoplasty, facial reconstruction and gender surgery, including facial feminization and masculinization surgery. He's an advocate for LGBTQ issues with a focus on transgender care and he's an immediate past chair of AMA's board level advisory committee on LGBTQ issues. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Surgery and a full time faculty member in the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Thank you both for taking time to join us on our show today.
1: Thank, thank you, you for having
0: us. Well, thank you. And let, let me get started with uh, Dr. Patel. What is the role of AMA's advisory committee on LGBTQ issues? Yeah, I
1: mean, I think the uh, AMA's uh, advisory committee, let me give you just a little bit of background. So it was actually established back in 2003 uh, by an internal resolution from the Young Physicians Section. Um, it has about seven members that are all nominated uh, by peers and then uh, uh, appointed by the Board of Trustees. Um, they meet uh, three times a year now. Um, and then in teleconference, um, uh, we partner with a number of organizations, including um LAMA, uh, Fenway, B2, the AM Foundation, uh, the Center for American Progress, the Task Force, Human Rights Campaign, a whole host of other people. Um, and then we work on a number of issues. You know, uh, some of the things we work on right now, data collection to make sure we appropriately identify people based on their sexual orientation and gender identity. Um that's done through a confidential volunteer basis, basically to uh be able to have uh use that data for research and analysis about our workforce and our members. We also work on things like um, issue briefs, which I know we'll be talking a lot about today, uh, which is really a project of AMA's advocacy arm. Um, and it, we, the primary authors are the members of our, uh, committee, our committee members. Uh, we co branded it with LAMA, um, and we launched it just in January of 2019. Um, those three first committee briefs, three first um, issue briefs are actually on conversion therapy, um, access to public disabilities and health insurance coverage for gender-affirming care for transgender patients. So we'll, I know we'll be talking more about that um, over the rest of the course, but that's essentially what the advisory committee has worked on for the last uh, year and kind of an awesome nutshell.
0: Well, good. And Dr. Chai, how have AMA's position and advocacy efforts on LGBTQ health care evolved in the past 10 years?
2: We've seen a really large uptick thanks to um, one key change, and that was the GLAMA, the um, help of Russians' organizations uh, addressing LGBTQ care, had a seat in the House of Delegates. And at that point, we really saw a change in the curve where there was a big uptick in policies that AMA adopted. If to remember, like Georgia, our medical association, the national organization, is a member-driven, policy-driven organization. So people who take care of, say, children, pediatricians who see disparities in LGBTQ care or those who treat the military and see the medical uh, complications of not treating um, or treating transgender troops these policies were born out of the members of the organization and so now that we have policies that are grounded in the members experience we can now actually speak to these issues in the healthcare system that are going through our court systems and going through our legislature. So it's been a a collaborative process across the House of Medicine based off of providers who who treat LGBTQ patients every day and then make AMA policy.
0: Well, good. So, Dr. Patel, how has the relationship between the AMA and and GLMA, the Health Professionals Advancing LGBTQ Equality Organization, affected change within the medical profession as well as within the LGBTQ community? I mean, it's it's been a really fantastic partnership.
1: We're very lucky uh, that we've been able to partner with Glamour um, in a number of ways. One, uh, while uh, there is some content expertise uh, within the AMA, uh, Glamma has a whole host that's very broad and very deep which is helping provide that uh, expertise. I think the second thing is, They have a very large membership, and so they're able to work, and we can hear things that happen at the grassroots level, um, as well as they can kind of advocate, um, you know, both at the patient level and uh, hospital level, et cetera. So it not only uh, helps them amplify their message by working with us, but it helps amplify our message as well. It's a very uh, fantastic relationship, um, and we're very lucky to kind of be partnering with you.
0: Well, good. And then, Dr. Chai, I understand that AMA and, and GLMA recently developed some issue briefs for key stakeholders, as Dr. Patel uh, referenced them a few minutes ago. Um, and, and, and obviously, the stakeholders would include lobbyists, would include legislators and the general public. So uh, can you get a little bit more specific as to what subjects that are addressed and how can our audience obtain those uh, those
2: issue briefs? Thanks for that prompt. Um, So the AMA has housed our three new issue briefs on its website. And so I'll just say if you're familiar with the AMA website, you can navigate through uh, population care. Um, It's a specific delivering care to a population LGBTQ patients, but if you're not familiar with the AMA website, you can simply Google advocating for the LGBTQ community, and on that page, what you'll find is not only three PDFs of the issue briefs that we'll discuss here today, but also talking points, and we really try to make these issue briefs uh, amenable for all, meaning if you know nothing about the issue if you are speaking to a legislator or a legislative aide who has uh, never heard of conversion therapy or unfamiliar with gender identity and transgender patients. Um, they're they're not meant to make any assumptions on your knowledge base. Um, they're there to be educational and also they're full of re- references, not only from the medical side, but also from the legal side so that anyone with a medical or a legal background who's reading this can feel comfortable. So talking points and issue briefs are available for you. Um, Advocating for the LGBTQ community on the AMA website um, is an easy way to find us.
0: And and so, and and let's get into some of the issue briefs. So uh, one of them as as you both referenced was on conversion therapy. So for our audience, uh, what is, Dr. Patel, what is conversion therapy? And, And give us some examples.
1: Sure. So, uh, conversion therapy really kind of refers to uh, you know a variety of interventions um, such as um, individual or group behavioral, uh, cognitive, uh, or environmental operations, which really are an attempt to change an individual's sexual orientation or sexual behaviors or an individual's gender identity. Um, there's a, a variety of ways that people do this. Um, often through aversive conditioning, like electric shock therapy. Um, Sometimes it's deprivation of foods and liquids. Um, They'll often do chemically-induced nausea. Um, Sometimes it's biofeedback or hypnosis. Um, There's a whole host of ways that this can kind of be defined. And so
0: just more specifically, what is biofeedback?
1: So biofeedback is essentially, uh, that's also kind of a very broad uh, term um, in terms of, uh, you know, basically kind of um it's almost like a pavlovian i feel like is, is a way to kind of describe it where you um uh you you get kind of a um sometimes it's like a shock or whatnot when you are like i'm thinking about this um okay. or uh, thinking about some kind of thought associated with it and so that's kind of where
0: you're trying to uh change a person's behavior not that way. and then is the basis is conversion therapy based on the idea that it's a mental disorder? Is is that what the basis is when 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 people speak who are proponents of conversion therapy?
1: Yeah, so I think all underlying all of this is the assumption that homosexuality and gender identity are mental disorders. Um, and also, I think the other underlying assumption is that sexual orientation and gender identity can actually be changed. Uh, and of course, I think those of us in the medical community know that this assumption is not really based on medical or scientific evidence.
0: Right. And so, so the literature supports that it's not on medical, uh, uh, mental disorder. Is that correct? Correct.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's, a, right. The, yeah. There's, I think there's generally professional consensus that rejects that pathologic pathologizing uh, homosexuality and gender nonconformity in addition to like there's empirical evidence that demonstrates that homosexuality and variations in gender identity are all kind of normal variants of human expression that are not really inherently linked to mental illness
0: and then can conversion therapy change a person's sexual orientation or gender gender identity
1: you know, in fact, I feel like um, not only do we know that there's not there's not any strong evidence that shows that it can, I think there's a lot of harms that are associated with it. Um, you know, that can cause a lot of like psychological distress. There's a lot of health
0: implications. And so, would, would some of the most common harms be like depression, anxiety?
1: Yeah, exactly. Depression, anxiety. I think people have lower self esteem. Uh, you'll do a lot of self blame they'll often lead to like physical effects, even like sexual dysfunction. Um, you know, um, there's some psych terms like intrusive Im- Im- imagery. Um, often they'll have a lot of self-hate, internalized homophobia. Um, there's also often when you look at kind of long-term data, there's a lot of social and interpersonal harm, such as alienation, loneliness, social isolation, which interferes with kind of having any kind of uh, relationships with other people. There's a loss of social support, and I think we all know kind of what happens when you feel very isolated and you don't have that kind of social support.
0: And then also suicidal, be- suicidal behavior is also one of the, the common harms associated with conversion therapy. Isn't that correct?
1: Exactly right. Um, there's a whole host. And, you know, we could probably spend the entire hour talking about all those harms and uh, what happens to a lot of patients. And I've met a few, and it's really, uh, it really does a number on people.
0: And in, in, in Georgia, we have um, Representative Matt Wilson. Um, I spoke to him just the other day about uh, his House Bill 580, uh, which was filed in Georgia, which would outlaw conversion therapy uh, for minors. Uh, and my understanding is that there's about 14 other states that ban conversion therapy uh, across the country. Isn't that correct? We're actually up to about 16. Colorado, oh, wow. just I think a
1: day or two ago. Um, said that they uh, were going to do it, so they. I think the House or the their chambers passed it, and I think their governor uh, said that he was willing to sign it. So this, that will be the 16th, I should say. There's not 16 um, at this point as well, uh, but there's there's really we're seeing these bills kind of all around the country. Um, there's kind of four main components that we're seeing. Um, one is prohibition of the practice by licensed healthcare professionals, including counselors and therapists. Um, the second is more like these prohibitions that apply to the treatment of minors. Um, the third is prohibition that doesn't really apply to like legitimate counseling for self acceptance right. and support. The fourth is kind of this enforcement power that's been given to state licensing boards. So there's a whole host of these things that we're seeing, um, and so but definitely HB five eighty is very much on uh, on track with that.
0: Well, good, and and, and this year uh, it did get a hearing. Um, but due to being filed after uh, on crossover day, uh, the bill is not going to move this year. But we anticipate it's going to get some movement next year, uh, as we have a two-year general assembly. Well, do- Dr. Chai, great news to hear. Oh, sorry, uh, Dr. Chai. What What are some of the barriers for transgender care?
2: So, just to to be clear, to give the audience a quick overview. So, anyone whenever we tr- use the word transgender, um, if those who are um, born where you your internalized sense of gender which is somewhere formed between age 2 and 5 in all of us if you're internalized, your internalized your inner sense of gender is congruent with your outer body then you are not transgender you're in term cisgender but transgender is a term that we use for whenever or the, the, the society uses whenever someone who has an inner sense of gender doesn't match the outside. So that can be either you identify as feminine and your body is, is in fact born male or vice versa, or you identify something as um, called non-binary. Um, it's important to remember that that these individuals who identify as not cisgender, but be transgender, have formed a gender identity from their childhood. Um, And so when they seek to undergo changes to affirm their inner sense of gender so that the outer sense matches their inner sense, changes can include things as simple as as wearing different clothing styles, wearing makeup. Um, And then we get into things that are more medically based like uh, hormone therapy, which can, um, for example, if, um, someone who is born genetically male but identifies as gender female, they can take testosterone blockers, and they cannot take estrogen. Unfortunately, um, uh, there's just one aspect of their care that um, that we see that has a lot of barriers, and so the barriers that are put up in terms of our healthcare system are barriers on these patients receiving care for that gender affirmation process, and that can include, as I mentioned, hormones. It can include mental health and it can also include barriers to what I part of my practice is uh, surgical changes to affirm one's inner sense of their gender.
0: And so just to uh, before I get into the the health implications for coverage, let me ask you, are there uh, you or Dr. Patel, are there any state or federal policies in place to protect transgender patients?
1: Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think um, you know, there's some final regulations. I think that the uh, HHS had kind of put out back in 2016. Um, I think it was part of the ACA to kind of extend protections against sexual discrimination um, to the health coverage and care for those that are undergoing that, that including gender identity discrimination within kind of the definition of sex discrimination. But uh, I think there was a federal court that stayed the legal challenge. After the current administration announced it would reconsider the rules based on gender identity so we don't know what that timeline of agency is, this is happen. And of course the current administration has to declined to defend that regulation um, there are some rulings by the equal employment opportunities commission that remain intact
2: um,
1: however which found that like employee sponsored plans then gender-affirming care uh, violate Title VII. Uh, so Title VII, for those that don't know, the Civil Rights Act prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and, sex and national origin. Um, in addition to kind of what I mentioned with the ACA, the federal government's really taken some steps to bar discrimination against transgender individuals in federal health programs. Um, and so that goes back to like 2014, where HHS actually invalidated a prior prohibition on Medicare coverage of gender-affirming surgery, citing evidence supporting its effectiveness in treating gender dysphoria, like Dr. Taya mentioned, and potential for improved health outcomes. Um, also in 2016, the Office of Personal Management, OPM, uh, barred exclusions for gender transition services in federal employees with health benefits programs. So that's kind of on the federal level, and then I think there's about half the country, a little over 26 states, I think, in the DC that prohibit health insurance from excluding coverage from transgender health care.
0: And then, Doctor Chai, what, what, you give me some. What what are the health implications for coverage with transgender care? We kind of alluded to it in the last two questions, ago.
2: yeah. So I'll, I'll just first pause and make a quick plug. The issue brief that, that we've been discussing today that's available on the AMA website was really developed by a lot of content experts. You know, the, the, the goal of, of this conversation today is to give you a highlight, but some of the things I'm gonna be mentioning are laid out with references um, for, your, for all the audience to, to be able to cite um, if, if needed. But basically just to, to summarize, um, when when transgender people um, do not have access to healthcare care coverage, um, it puts a huge detriment on their mental health and their physical health. We know from population studies that the transgender patients have higher episodes of depression, suicidality, anxiety disorder and gender affirming care that that we've discussed um, has an impact to decrease all of those negative detriments. So, um in a sense, providing someone care for um, undergoing an affirmation of their gender confirms to them a protective effect of less depression, less anxiety, less suicide. And you can also extend this to to youth who often are going through uh, an affirmation process during their adolescence. And so these patients um, also have been shown where providing patients with gender-affirming care and access and insurance coverage um, can decrease these health um, uh, detriments. Um, and again, just to say that this, these are all kind of outlined um, for the audience members um, in the issue brief discussing the specific paragraphs on health implications for transgender individuals, kind of going through this um, kind of citation by citation of what those can, patients can expect um, when they do receive this positive gender-affirming care for adults as well as uh, for youth.
0: And then I'd leave this question to either one of you. Are there cost implications associated with health insurance coverage for transgender patients? There was
1: actually an economic impact assessment that was done um, that kind of looked at the aggregate cost of anti-discrimination rules, and they actually ruled that it was very insignificant or immaterial, Um, and it was actually obviously significant benefits to transgendered individuals, including, as you kind of referred, uh, referred to previously with conversion therapy, suicide reduction, improvements in mental health, reduction in substance use, uh, higher risk of adherence to their medication. Uh, and so there was actually a cost saving in the medium to long term due to lower costs associated with suicide and attempts at suicide. Um, I think we uh, know, we can kind of reference the CDC, and we know the average acute medical cost of a single suicide completion or attempt ranges anywhere from about $2,600 to about $7,600, respectively. Um, so we know that there's actually, when they do cost analysis, um, there's also a, um, looking looking at it, there's actually lower cost um, at the end of the day to society. In fact, when they looked at kind of coverage of transition-related surgeries, they found that costs in the first five years to both insurers and employers were pretty low, averaging less than a dollar uh, per year per enrollee, um, that re- and, and resulted in no surcharge or premium increases. So I think, it's, in general, when we look at the cost, this is actually kind of a win-win.
0: Yeah, and, and reviewing, and I would encourage everyone to really look at those uh, th- those issue briefs because uh, there's some great information in there. For instance that 25% of the patients are denied coverage for gender treatments. 25% of the patients are denied uh, for hormones. 55% are denied for transition-related surgery. I mean, these are cost implications that go back to the patient um, that are related to their health care. Dr. Chayat, let let me ask you, uh, what are bathroom bills? And how have states enacted
2: them? So so bathroom bills, um, this is really what... um, led to the development of our issue briefs that we're talking about today. So um, for, for those listeners who don't know, the, the relationship between the state societies like the Medical Association of Georgia, the American Medical Association, is one where um, when a state bill is um, coming before a medical association to consider, um, they can look to the AMA for resources, but it's not the AMA's role in any way to, to, to come and step in. And what we found is that we had a lack of resources when the state of North Carolina had passed a bathroom bill and then uh, other states were considering passage. And so we realized that by making a resource to those states that were having state legislators consider these bills. the the education there was needed. And that was really the, the first step in creating these. I'll just be really specific and say a bathroom bill is a catch-all term that restricts someone's access based off of their um, gender to any public facilities. And in a sense, it's a um, it's a discriminatory bill restricting one's uh, use of, of any public facility. And so um, the, the state that I did mention, North Carolina um, has passed that um, that first so-called bathroom bill. And since it was repealed, although repealed with some with some caveats in there that uh, are outside this discussion, but one state has passed and repealed uh, a restriction on one's use of bathroom based on the patient, uh, on the person's rather sex on their birth certificate. Um, and as we've discussed in this call today, that uh, gender is something that is learned from h two, somewhere between age two and five. Um, And so to restrict public facilities to something on a birth certificate when one may have lived their entire life in in a gender that they have felt since age two to five um, was discriminatory.
0: And I I can say that um, in Georgia, any time which was years ago that any kind of discussion within bathroom bills was even brought up, um, it was immediately stopped. um, And Georgia has not decided to go anywhere near that direction. Um, Dr. Fried follow-up question for you. Uh, do bathroom bills present a unique
2: health implication uh, for transgender individuals? Um, absolutely, so um, there's there's certainly the mental health detriments that, that we've talked to. Anything that, that is discriminatory and restricts one's use of kind of going about their, their day-to-day life. Um, but more specifically, I think that's something that I learned through this process of um, learning that um, nearly one-third of transgender people report they limited the amount they ate or drank um, because of access to a public restroom. Um, 54% of transgender individuals, and this is not just in states in North Carolina during the, the period when it was passed, but in general in all of our states in the union, 54% of patients, transgender patients have reported physical problems avoiding restrooms at work, including dehydration, incontinence issues, and 8% have actually gone... Um, all the way to a kidney or urinary tract infection. Um, so, I think this data gives us as clinicians some really powerful information to say that discrimination not only has mental health detriments, but actually has created physical, um, physical harm to our patients when we restrict their use of the bathroom that is the patient's lived gender since, um, since very young in life.
0: And then a follow-up question, are there any federal or state policies that prevent this type of discrimination?
2: So that's been um, an exciting part of this process. We we initially created the issue brief um, process because we were reacting to the bathroom bills. And in its place, we've seen a, a, a large surge of number of states who want to say, you know, these are discriminatory, we're going to take our non-discrimination bills that are um, house statute or uh, um, state statute and we're going to add gender identity to our non-discrimination bills. So what became as a reaction to states considering and in one state passing a bathroom bill, now we see 19 states in the District of Columbia uh, enacting legislation that prohibit discrimination based off of any LGBTQ status. Um, We also see these in a lot of municipalities, uh, a lot of cities, and these are um, these are non-discrimination. They are saying that you cannot restrict someone's access to public locations like restaurants, hotels, medical facilities, um, and some even have additional categories for credit and education based off of one's gender identity.
0: And then let me ask one of you this question. How can our audience get more information on LGBTQ healthcare issues?
1: I mean I think there's a whole host of things. I think Scott's referenced a number of times in so of you the um, actual uh, issue briefs that are on the website. That's a good primer um in terms of just kind of giving you a quick overview. Um they're not very long, they're only a few pages long, so you can kind of quickly go over that. Because I know sometimes people just want kind of a big picture. Um there's also a whole host of other websites that you could go to. Uh there's the AMA's, you know, advocacy resource center. Um, There's some information that's actually on the section for us, for the Advisory Committee on LGBTQ Issues. The Human Rights Campaign has some stuff about the Healthcare Equality Index and the State Equality Index as well. Um, Lambda Legal would be another place that I would recommend. Um, And of course, the National Center for Transgender Equality. I think all of those places are going to have some additional information, and we can kind of send those out afterwards if that's helpful. Um, Scott, I'm not Thanks, sure if there's other resources
2: that you uh, can think of. Yeah, I think that, um, Shilvan, just to reiterate one of your points, I think that um, us here, you know, representing the American Medical Association LGBTQ Advisory Committee, we're welcome for, for feedback, for comments, for advice, anything that you might need. And there's a, an email address thats that I'll provide, lgbtq at ama-assn.org. So Um, STANDING FOR AMA ASSOCIATION, LGBTQ AT AMA Um, ASSN.ORG. A MAILBOX THAT CAN ANSWER ANY uh, QUESTIONS THAT YOU MAY HAVE THAT YOU WANT TO BRING CONCERNS, POSITIVE OR NEGATIVE, uh, FEEDBACK TO US. AND THEN um, A QUICK GOOGLE SEARCH, SOMETHING TO TAKE OFF OF WHAT shilpin SAID, IS THAT THE HRC um, DID GO STATE BY STATE TO LOOK AT WHAT BILLS ARE ON THE BOOKS CURRENTLY or what bills such as a non-discrimination bill could be added or a conversion therapy ban could be added. And so if you um, if you have a second, any of the audience members listening and you just type in HRC, State Equality Index, Georgia, um, you may uh, find um, something that might surprise you or may not surprise you, depending on, on your current knowledge of, of Georgia, um, where Georgia law is protecting LGBTQ patients and where there are protections needed. but it's a great educational resource for your state and for um, things that are affecting your patients right there on the ground. So um, we're welcome for further questions, anything that you need, please do not hesitate um, as you go through this process learning of getting a hold of us.
0: Yeah. I wanna thank both of you for, for this discussion, um, especially bringing awareness. Um, I wanna uh, express my sincere thanks to, to everyone who, who's assisted us with uh, getting the show off the ground. Uh, I also want to encourage our audience to turn around and share today's program um, with their family and colleagues and friends. Make sure to follow MAG on uh, Facebook and Twitter to get the latest episode of the Top Docs radio show. Also, remember that you can go to www.magdat.org backslash to get past episodes of the show. From everybody at MAG, thank you, and we look forward to catching up with you next time. Thank you.